Exodus chapter 16, we'll be starting from verse 1, reading through to 5, and then on to 13 to 20, and then Suliana will read a second passage from the book of John. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the, on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Let's move on to verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. The second reading is from John 6, verse 30 to 42. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. But the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, 
not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? This is the word of the Lord. Do you ever wonder whether God is really going to give you what you need? Or do you ever wonder whether God is going to leave you high and dry and miserable? Or do you ever think, maybe God will give me what he thinks I need, but he doesn't really understand what that is. God maybe just doesn't quite realize how much I need a bit more money, or my health to get better, or my spouse's health to get better. Or he doesn't realize that I actually really need to meet someone, or I really need that job. He just... He doesn't quite get it. Or do you ever find yourself thinking, well, maybe he knows perfectly well what I need, but he just doesn't actually love me. Maybe he's forgotten me, or he's not with me anymore, or he's punishing me. Or maybe I need to make some contingency plans in life apart from God, in case he doesn't help me. If if I'm all in on God, I might end up missing out because maybe he won't. He won't come through for me. Can I confess to you that I think I've thought most of those things at points and that I think some of them often. And as I've looked at uh, Exodus 16 over the last week or so, um, I've found in this chapter that we've just had readings from um, a rebuke, strong rebuke, and a comfort. And so I'm going to pray that each of us would find the same as we look at it together. Let's pray. Father, please, will you speak to us what we need to hear through your word this morning? And where we come to your word needing correction, needing to see things differently, please do that. And where we come needing comfort, needing to see things differently, please comfort us. Please be at work uh, amongst us this morning by your spirit to whatever end you have in mind. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series through the book of Exodus this morning. And um, if you were here two weeks ago, that's when we were last looking at it. And two weeks ago, we'd just seen the people of Israel saved. God had rescued the whole nation of them from uh, various things. From, he'd rescued them from the plague on the firstborn. And he told them, you need to sacrifice a lamb and uh, in place of the firstborn in each family, and you'll be saved. And it happened. And then he'd rescued them from Egypt itself, where they were living and they were in slavery. And uh, he'd, he'd done that by splitting the Red Sea in half. And his people had escaped, and the Egyptians had been destroyed. And now he's promised to them, I am going to bring you to a much better country than Egypt. I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, he says. 
That's where I'm taking you. But he doesn't take them straight there. And the rest of Exodus is uh, the story of them spending ages and ages and ages wandering around in the desert first. And the reason for that, the reason for not taking them straight there, is that God wants to teach them some things about how relationship with him is going to work. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, and that won't be everyone, but if that is you, um, that's a very similar position to the one that you find yourself in this morning. New Testament says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Uh, we, we, all of that lamb stuff in Exodus, it pointed forward to Jesus' death on the cross, where he died instead of us to save us. That's happened. And uh, New Testament says that we have been, if we're Christians, brought out of captivity, not to Egypt in our case, but captivity to sin. And God has promised to us a promised land, not just a particular country, but a whole new creation. He says we are, we're going to get there, but we're not there yet. Instead, we are in a kind of wilderness where God wants to teach us some things about how relationship with him works. He says to his people here in Exodus 15, 16, 17, two very basic lessons that they need to understand. He provides for us. We need to trust him. So let's have a look um, through the passage and then we'll draw those two things out a little bit more fully. We pick it up um, just after chapter 15, verse 21, page 73 if you've lost it. Um, Chapter 15, verse 21 where the Israelites are celebrating beside the Red Sea. They've just gone through it. Egyptians have just been drowned by it, and they they can't get enough of it. So chapter 15, verse 21, um, they've just sung a really long song, but here's another one. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider, uh, horse and driver, he is hurled into the sea. They're exultant. And then that is followed almost immediately by complaining. It's like, uh, I guess, kids in the back of the car on a long car journey that start with, yes, we're going on holiday. I'm so excited. And then within, what, sort of 15 minutes, it's, have we got any snacks? He's hitting me. Are we there yet? So verse 22, they're, uh, they're through the Red Sea, and they've got a problem. Uh, there's no water. And then in verse 23, they find some water, but it's not very nice. So um, verse 24 The people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Bear in mind, their God had split the sea in half earlier that week. You might think they have enough evidence to trust him with water-based problems at this stage. But they don't think so, so they grumble. And uh, the Lord does a miracle, and the, the water is made fit to drink, and then he leads them to the kind of place that you dream of in the desert. Verse 27, they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Now at that stage, what are you feeling if you're an Israelite? Grateful? Relaxed, I guess? Maybe a little bit embarrassed? Because you you doubted the God of the Red Sea on water issues. And not only has he given you water, but he's brought you to what basically appears to be a hydrotherapy spa in the middle of the desert. 
lacks only some sun lounges and a cocktail bar. And yet, unbelievably, the complaining and the distrust continues into chapter 16. This time, they're hungry. I'll read from verse 2. In the desert, the whole community, note that by the way, not just kind of one or two voices, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It's amazing, isn't it? That is not what Egypt was like. They were slaves. It was awful. They groaned to the Lord to rescue them. And now, as they think back on it, they remember it as a kind of all-you-can-eat buffet. And so verse 4, I think it would be fair enough if verse 4 said, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down judgment on the lot of you. But instead, I will rain down bread from heaven. As the Lord says, I hear your mistrust of me after everything I've done for you. I hear that you think I don't care or you think I'm useless. And I will respond not by saying stuff the lot of you, but by giving you yet another reason to trust me. So he gives them bread. In fact, um, if you flick over to verse 13, uh, he gives them meat as well. Verse 13, that evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. They were told uh, uh, then in in verse 16 to, to gather as much as they wanted and nobody lacked anything at all. It was free and abundant provision. And it comes with one or two specific instructions. So they're told, verse 19, not to try and store it up and stockpile it. They're told, just, just take what you need for today, because tomorrow there's going to be some more. But, verse 20, they distrust again. They distrust that. They stuff their pockets with it. And in the morning, the whole camp stinks of their disobedience, literally. They're told, um, in verse 23, that on Fridays, the day before the Sabbath, to take double the amount because they're not going to be allowed to collect any more um, on the Sabbath. But then verse 27, some of them distrust again. And so they sneak out on the, on the Saturday morning to try and find some more. So God provides them with some bread and some instructions. And they disobey just about every line of the instructions. And yet he keeps on giving them bread. In fact, Uh, verse 35 right at the end of the chapter he continues in spite of all of this giving them bread day after day for a full four decades that they spend in the wilderness just before that in verse 33 he teaches them he gives them a way of remembering that kindness of his says take some of this manna and put it in a jar and then every time you look at that jar the idea is that you will remember how God has provided for you. But then unbelievably, there's another grumbling episode. Chapter 17, verse 1, end of the verse. There's no water. Aha, been here before. 
We know the Lord can provide for us. We know the Lord is very good at water. But verse 3, but the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us, and I imagine someone at the back of the crowd piping up, to make us and our children and then someone else and our livestock die of thirst. And you think if you're Moses, you're kind of, what, what, else, do, what else can be done? And yet still no judgment, still no destruction, still no forget it. Verse 5, Moses strikes a rock from which water gushes for the whole nation. Two lessons. Number one, the Lord provides. Called this series, you see that up on the screen, Behold Your God, because that's the agenda to a large extent of the book of Exodus, to, to help us to see what God is like. What's God like from this passage? Oh, he's unbelievably generous, isn't he? By salvation, water, now bread. And a lot of bread, as much as anybody could want. What's he like? He's patient, 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 isn't he? I mentioned the kind of car journey with kids before. Imagine that is a car journey that takes 40 years and there's a million of them. Imagine that kind of, of patience. Don't worry about turning there, but um, Deuteronomy 1. Deuteronomy 1 is the very end of the journey of which Exodus 16 is, is the beginning. And uh, Moses looks back over it and he says, In the wilderness you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. The Lord picked you up out of slavery and carried you to freedom. But these children are convinced that their father doesn't have their best interests at heart. And so he's, they spend the whole journey kind of hammering on his chest saying, put us, put us down, let us go back, leave us alone. But he holds on and he holds on and he holds on. And I wonder if anyone else here hears the story of their life in that. God provides. And God providing actually is the whole shape of Christianity. In most other religions, most other kind of understandings of God or the gods, God receives, as he has a right to, to be fair, if he's God, to receive worship and obedience and offerings and stuff. And he may choose sometimes to give things, but fundamentally, we give, he receives. We perform, God takes. But the Lord the God of Exodus, the God of the Bible, provides. And ultimately, he provides himself. And that's why we had those verses from John chapter 6. Read actually next week in the evening service, we're going to think about that a little bit more. John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus said, Very truly, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then later on, he said, I am the living bread. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So in Jesus, God has come down from heaven and given himself over to death so that we can have life for eternity. God provides. 
In a few minutes' time, we're going to share communion together. And when we do that, I trust Pete won't say achieve, perform, but he'll read the words of the Lord Jesus, take and eat. God has given us Jesus. He's provided that. And if he's provided the thing that we most need, surely he will give us everything that we need. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Not, obviously, necessarily everything we want, but everything that we need to get us to the promised land in heaven and in the new creation. God will give us as much physical food as we need for the number of days that he's assigned to us. God will give us whatever we need to sustain us spiritually. And he knows our needs. One of the really hard places we can find ourselves as a Christian is where there's a thing that we really feel that we need that God hasn't promised to us. And we're in this, does does God understand my needs or does he not? And in that position, we're left with the promise of Jesus when he says, your heavenly father knows what you need. He knows and he loves. And he provides everything that we need, not for an easy life, but to get us to where he's taking us. The Lord provides. Second lesson, therefore, we need to trust him. Now, we've already talked a bit about why the Lord lets his people go through all this business in the wilderness. It could have been a very, very short journey. He took them on a very, very long journey. Um, through the wilderness. And um, I'm going to read a couple more verses from Deuteronomy, actually, this, this time Deuteronomy 8, that make sense of why the wilderness thing happens. Don't feel you need to turn to them, but you're welcome to. I'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And again, this is from the end of the journey, looking back to Exodus 16 and everything that followed. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you. And then it goes on later. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, here I think is the key bit, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, the point of all of this is to show the people that their issue is about trust, not about bread. Imagine for a moment that um, I am extremely wealthy and uh, I write you a check. I I can't remember the last time I wrote a check, but imagine I'm extremely wealthy and I write you a check for 10 million pounds or whatever and I'm promising to pay you that. And you walk away from that conversation thinking, I'm so poor, I'm just, I'm I'm cash strapped. If you feel that way, you haven't got a money problem anymore. The the problem is is with what you think of my words. (laughs) Whether you think what I say can be relied on or not, whether they're valuable. And we've seen here in Exodus 16 that the people of Israel don't trust the Lord to care for them. And I don't know if maybe that's a a bit of the after effects of life in Egypt. They've just got so used to the people in authority over them, exploiting them, abusing them, all that kind of stuff. And maybe, by the way, that's you today feel very hard to trust God when you've known trust very badly abused in the past. 
which case I direct you to the compassion and patience and persistence of the Lord uh, in these verses. Lots of authors on Exodus have made the point that you can take a person out of slavery very quickly. just needs a transaction and it's done. But to take slavery out of a person is a very long and complicated process. And that's what the wilderness years were for. It's what the manna was for. The whole way that the Lord gives them manna is designed to put the people in a position where they can't ever stop trusting him. So uh, come back to Exodus 16, verse 3. Uh, Here we have the basic problem again. They haven't got any bread. (laughs) That's the basic problem. But even once God starts giving them bread, um, they end every day in this position again with no bread left. He deliberately builds in to how he provides for them a sense of, of their need. They're not allowed to store it up, so they just have to get to the end of each day and say, we've just got to trust him for tomorrow. They think they end every day with a bread problem, but really they end every day with a trust problem. Because God has said, I am going to provide you with what you need. But it's a thought that they can't get used to. They, they can't get used to the thought that he really won't abandon them. That he, he really will provide for them. He really does know what they need. And that, I guess, is why we looked at it in verse 20. They stuffed their pockets with the manna at the end of the day. They can't get used to the thought that he's going to provide tomorrow as well. Or why in verse 27 they sneak out on the Sabbath morning. They, they can't get used to the thought that maybe he's just withholding. He's not withholding anything from them. The problem is with what they think of the words that come from the mouth of the Lord. And that's why they grumble. One of the repeated themes of that chapter and the one in John 6, actually, grumbling. I'm trying to think this week, what, why is it that we grumble? Why do I grumble? And I guess it's because I think God isn't doing that good a job of running the world, running my life. He's, I, I sort of think maybe he's, he's dealt me a bad hand and he should have dealt me a different hand and a better one. Very striking. The the Bible here and elsewhere talks about grumbling as a sin. I think in our culture, often grumbling is a kind of neutral thing. It's just a thing that you do. You've got to to get, get it off your chest. Or as an actively positive thing. It's a good thing to grumble because that's then you're being authentic and you're you're just being who you are and you're not putting on a front. And it's true that often in the Bible, people complain to God about the circumstances that they're in. And people long for things to be different and put right, and people talk honestly about that. But I guess the difference is that when people are doing that right, they are deciding to trust the Lord in the midst of things not being the way they want them to be. They decide that they're going to talk to him about it and not just kind of complain with other people. They decide that they're going to use the things that are not right to look forward to when God puts everything right, rather than to look back and to think, oh, maybe God's no good. So authenticity and honesty, yes. Lament, yes. But grumbling, well, let's learn from the people of Israel here. But as frustrating as the Israelites are in Exodus 16, 
I can't read this chapter and not see myself in it. How many times does the Lord need to show me his love and care before I will trust him? I've got a whole Old Testament's worth of reasons to trust him. I've got the whole of the time that I've been a Christian. I can look back on and see that the Lord has never abandoned me, never been mean to me. Even the times when I was tempted to think he was being mean, often we can look back and say, and see, actually, he was, he was being kind in that circumstance. John Newton wrote in a letter to someone, I can hardly recollect a single plan of mine of which I've not since seen that had it taken place just as I proposed, it would have proved my ruin. Or at least it would have deprived me of the greater good the Lord designed for me. I've got the Old Testament. I've got my life as evidence of God's, of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. And above all, um, I have got the fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for me. So much did he love me that he gave himself. Can I really look at that and doubt that God is good and powerful? This is why we need the wilderness. It's why the people of Israel needed it. It's why we need it. And maybe this morning you really feel like you're in the wilderness. That's just how life feels for you at the moment and the reality is we're all in it whether or not we feel it we're we're all in it as we wait for the promised land but we need the wilderness we need this season of waiting because heaven is a place for people who trust the Lord and he's training us more and more and more to trust him not to grumble or doubt or become hard towards him but to trust him Obviously, that doesn't mean inactivity. Um, In the chapters that follow this, the Israelites do all sorts of stuff on the basis of trust in the Lord. They pray, uh, they organize themselves into a sensible governance structure. And um, it's true that when you receive kindness from God, it, it transforms you, it changes your life. But in the end, trust is the issue. It means obeying what he says and leaving the consequences with him. So the question is, we come to the end of it. How do we trust God? By remembering that he provides for us, one day at a time. And maybe like me, you kind of take stock of your life and you think, well, actually, as I kind of look at it all, I'm not sure I do trust the Lord very much at all. The answer is not to kind of beat ourselves up for that, but it is to remember who God is and what he's done. That, I think, is what verse 33 is for, that thing about putting the manna in a jar for everybody to see and remember how God provides. The idea is they'd look at the jar and think, can you really doubt? After you look at that, can you really doubt that the Lord will provide for you? Remember how he's done it already in the wilderness. And remember how he's done it above all in Jesus. Bread from heaven who gave himself so that we could live for eternity. That's the kind of God we can trust. And he's given us something similar to the manna in a jar. He's given us bread and wine to remember how he's provided for us so that we'll decide this morning, perhaps for the first time, perhaps again, 
we'll realize that we can trust him and decide to do that. We can trust him all the way through the wilderness until we get to the true promised land. When all these little kind of remembrances and meals, they're going to give way to feasting. And faith and trust will give way to seeing forever. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you for your patient, abundant, generous, guaranteed provision of all that your people need in order to get to the promised land that awaits us. We're sorry that we trust you so little and trust you so rarely. We pray that as we've seen now and as we see in a few minutes, your faithfulness and your provision before our eyes again, that you'd grow trust in us for whatever the circumstances in which we need to trust you this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.